At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today, we're going to be focusing on the policy side of healthcare. This is a very robust topic. We can go as deep as, gosh, humanly possible and still probably never find the bottom of it. Policy is inherent in the United States, obviously, a bunch of different aspects of life, but in healthcare, policy seems, in my opinion, to get in the way more often than actually help things. Today's guest is somebody who is very integral in that policy discussion with a lot of things that would actually help out the American consumer, American healthcare consumer, patients, you name it. Please welcome Dr. John O'Shea from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. John, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Chris, thanks very much. I I really have been looking forward to this and um you know, judging by the content you've had on previously and the, some of the guests that you've had, I really feel kind of flattered and uh, and honored to be your guest here. So thanks very much. Well, John, you're going you're to make me blush here. So I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I will say, yeah, we've talked to a, a very colorful, uh, gosh, subset of of people kind of doing the right thing in healthcare, in my opinion. So it's been a it's been an absolute blast. And I'm excited to have you on the show as well. You have been very prolific, you know, throughout your career, and you know we'll dive a little deeper into your background here. But with your work from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, that's an organization that I've mentioned before. Love the work you're putting out there. Really, really a free market. I don't think think tank is the right word because you're actually doing something. Give us your own words, really, about the work that you're doing at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Well, yeah, we've uh, done a lot of, uh, we've looked at a lot of issues over the past year or two, certainly. And a lot of it is geared toward, you know, either, either pending legislation or, or things that we'd like to see come up on the radar screen. And I think if there's, if, if there's an underlying theme to all of this and a lot of things that we've looked at, it's to, to kind of promote more uh, healthcare consumer choice, more competition in the healthcare marketplace. And certainly issues that deal with excessive government regulation. And I think your comments were well placed there in saying that policy very often in, in terms of healthcare gets in the way kind of more than it, it helps. Certainly there's a role for um, accountability in, in healthcare, but when that morphs into excessive regulation, it can certainly have an impact on things like innovation, certainly. I think we using the term accountability. I love that word because to me, being accountable for something is you know we're going to raise your hand, take responsibility for it. You make a mistake, okay? Yep, made a mistake, but learn from it. Accountability in healthcare 
oftentimes leads to barriers, expense, and waste. So I want to I want to hear from you. you know, what are the top priorities from your end that you would love to see in a state legislature get passed, get through things that you're working on right now? Well, some of the things um, would be to just make it make it for a freer, more competitive, more um, freely functioning um, marketplace, if you will, as much as possible. You know, certainly healthcare is different than a lot of other sectors of the economy in many ways. But I think there's there's a lot of room where you could introduce more competition, more consumer choice, give consumers the information that they need to make better value choices. And all these things would, would lead to some of the things that, um, that, that everyone wants is better quality, better value health care and uh, reduction in the costs of health care. Certainly, so I think there's a lot of lot of room in that in that direction, and that's just you know that's kind of broadly speaking. As you said, you can kind of go into detail as much as you want on a lot of these issues, and I'll also say that you know when you talk about what's needed in healthcare, you know, and certainly when you say healthcare in the United States, you know, it, it's not just one thing. I mean, the U.S. healthcare system is this big, broad, national, uh, diverse system. And, you know, certainly healthcare in Manhattan is a lot different than healthcare in, in rural South Dakota. So there's a lot of aspects to look at when you talk about, quote, health reform. It was interesting how you're talking about policy as a way to help people buy and access care at lower cost. To me, Adam Smith is rolling over in his grave saying, what in the world? That's not up to government to do. That's the magic of free markets. How do we get to this place where we're at right now, where we're looking at government programs in order to free up the buying power and decision-making of an American consumer dealing in the healthcare world? Yeah, and I think a lot of it has come just, you know, it's been an evolution of complexity, if you will. And... Um, you know, certainly a lot of things that have happened over the last, you know, 50 to 75 years in healthcare have been beneficial. Certainly a lot of the clinical advances and, and uh, things along those lines, in improvements in health outcomes. But along with that has come this complexity of, you know, third-party uh, payers, uh, insurance, uh, the insurance system that we have, the way we pay for healthcare services, the way we deliver healthcare services that has gotten so complex that it's certainly gotten away from, you know, a, a, a fully functional um, marketplace where, for example, that, that a consumer would know what the price is of a service and would be price sensitive and, and be able to make healthy and, um, and value-based choices on, that, on the information that they have. One of those initiatives that I was really excited about and I loved reading your work on this because we're firm believers in this is being able to free the physician up to go out and care for patients the way they see fit talking specifically about non-compete agreements in our opinion these non-compete agreements from from hospital organizations have just been incredibly burdensome nearly abusive and Basically, if a doctor wants to go be a doctor, I mean, kind of tongue in cheek here, but you got to move out of the state to go do that because you can't practice, you know, where you live anymore for these these very restrictive covenants in these contracts. 
Give us a little insight, John, into your research on non-compete agreements and where that's going in Texas. So, you know, if you look at non-compete agreements, they've been around for a long time. And, you know, they've been around since probably, you know, the 1400s began with when you had an apprentice and you didn't want to train them and give them valuable training for four or five years and then have them go out and compete against you. And certainly in, in certain segments of the labor market, there's some merit to non-compete agreements. But when it comes to healthcare, care, um, a lot of those arguments just aren't so compelling. And it's really restrictive. And, and especially now with the consolidation in, in health care, so there are a lot more physicians that are employed by large conglomerates, either health systems or large uh, practices or even venture capitalists. And they have a large reach so that when you come out of, you know, say training and you're looking for a job, the, the options are, are limited. You know, say you're a resident and you finish your training in an area and you've been there for four years, five years, your family's there. And you come out and there are, you know, one or two health systems in the area that are options for employment and they require a non-compete agreement. Well, you know, you can make the argument, well, the physician, the prospective employee has a choice, but is that really a choice? I mean, they can either accept the non-compete agreement or, like you said, you know, move somewhere where they don't want to live and uproot their family and things like that. So increasingly, these things are, are being seen as, um, you know, restrictive to the, the free flow of, um, of the labor market in, in healthcare at a time when, when there's really a shortage of uh, the healthcare providers and things like that. How does, putting that in perspective of if I was seeking care as a patient and I knew my physician was unhappy and wanting to leave, what kind of impact does that have on a patient when you're going to see somebody that you trust with your life knowing that they're unhappy, but they're locked into this job because they would have to completely uproot. I mean, that, that has to have serious patient consequences. You're right. And that's, that's another aspect of this is that it's disruptive of the uh, patient-doctor relationship. And that actually is one of the things that some state legislatures have looked at. And in Texas, uh, they do have legislation that does permit a physician to continue care of a patient even after they've left employment with an organization. So that is certainly an important aspect of it. And you could make the argument that, well, a physician could leave employment and then take patients with them. But, you know, you get into a question, it's sort of the, the patient-doctor relationship is a little bit different than sort of a business relationship with a client or a customer. And that's, that's the fascinating thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because we've talked to people before and physicians. This is one of my favorite questions to ask somebody is, do you think a patient can be owned? Because that's the type of vocabulary that hospitals use. That, oh, no, these are, these are our patients. You just take care of them. You're just a cog in the wheel, doctor. You don't have any say in this. We control what happens here. And that scares the hell out of me, John. It, it really, really does. It, exactly what you said, that how does the continuity of care affect this when big hospitals have this mindset that I'm just a number, maybe a dollar sign, not even a patient. And so if somebody who's been carrying me for my entire life leaves, then I am bound by some, I, it's not even It's not even like a contractual agreement. I didn't sign anything with this hospital. Right? Why? Why am I considered to be owned by this hospital, and why won't they let me follow my doctor? 
Yeah, you're right. And, um, you know, the, legally, the, the language is a little bit vague about who owns patients. And I think what it comes down to, the, the one thing that, that is clear is that the patient owns their own medical records and the information about their, their health care. So, Do hospital organizations know that? Because well, that's, that, that's another fight to try. Exactly. So that, that tends to, to get fought out, too. And a lot of these things, like the non-compete agreements, tend to get litigated. You know, there are a number of states, for example, that, that have uh, rendered non-compete agreements in, in various iterations, either with physicians or in general, unenforceable. But they still have to be litigated. And there's an inhibitory effect. I mean, if you're an individual physician, do you have the resources to litigate this, even though you're probably going to end up, you know, winning that, that litigation in the end? Do you want to, you know, amass uh, thousands of dollars in, in legal fees to do that? So it's a tough problem. Yeah, there's no cease and desist being issued to the hospital to to restrict this. And so that is one of the cases where I see, you know what, policy changes are needed in order to effectuate, like you said, freer movement of labor within the healthcare market. So I guess there's, I, I answered my own question earlier that, you know, there, there are some policy changes that are needed to help the American healthcare consumer indirectly by helping physicians be able to go seek out the, the, the best opportunity for them, like we see in any other industry. You also work on, and again, we're talking with Dr. John O'Shea with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You've also written some excellent papers around drug pricing reforms. This is a hot topic, obviously, because people say, oh, this is a really lofty goal of drug pricing reforms, but nobody really knows what that means because nobody really knows how PBMs work and all that kind of fun stuff. What did you learn? What did you find out when you were putting this particular piece together? Well, I th- you know, this is another one of these kind of gnarly um, policy issues because it's difficult to get a- good information about this, about drug prices. You know, certainly there are, there are a lot of things that contribute to increases in, in drug prices. You know, one of the things is that, you know, the United States is, is really the place where a lot of the uh, research and development happens. So that drives up healthcare prices, and especially for you know newer drugs and drugs that are not are, are still on patent and, and there are no generics for them. But even with generics, there's increases you know greater than 100 percent in about 20 percent of uh, of generics. So there are a lot of things that contribute to this, and and as you said, one of the things is you know the supply chain, pharmacy benefit managers you know, or these companies that sort of manage drug benefits for insurance firms. And they have a lot to say about not only the price of drugs, because they negotiate prices and discounts with the pharmacies, but they also have a lot to say about what drugs get used as part of these negotiations. So, and the difficult thing is that, you know, the process that that these pharmacy benefit managers go through is, is all kind of opaque, you know. It's they deem it proprietary, so it's hard to really get at it and find out where kind of where the money's going, and whether they're driving up costs and whether they're those costs are passed on to the consumer, you know, to the patient. I was actually in a meeting uh, with a U.S. senator and a representative from a major health insurance company who owns their own PBM. The representative he, he stands up. And he goes, I don't know why the U.S. Senate is 
or even Congress is looking at PBM transparency laws, again, making sure that you have to publish whatever you're making from rebates and all that kind of fun stuff on prescription plans. He stands up, got heated and said, putting our prices, putting what we charge out there, the transparency, that's not going to lower drug costs at all. You're wasting taxpayers' time and money. How does that hit you? How, how, does, how, does, how do you react to that statement? It's a tough one. You know, you get this argument a lot with around transparency. You get it with hospital prices as well. They make the same argument. So it's hard to really even get any data on it to make a counter argument. But certainly uh, there's been a, a big move recently to increase scrutiny of uh, pharmacy benefit managers. I think somewhere around 45, 46 states now have legislation on the books that in some form or another will increase scrutiny of uh, pharmacy benefit managers. As you said, that's a hot topic. Uh, it's a very hot topic and opinions on both sides. And usually I'm thinking, well, when it's very opaque and very complex, usually means a lot of waste can be built into that. And I think uh, from, what I've, from what I've learned, you know, being in this chair, um, it's not the root cause of a dysfunctional business of healthcare, a lot of people making money out there. But it's one of those ways where it's easy to hide where those dollars are going without somebody taking a local, a, a real good look at it. Absolutely. Going to kind of the, the third big subject that, you know, I've been a big fan of reading some of your work and some of your policy documents. Obviously, something that's near and dear to me from Freedom HealthWorks is increasing access to direct primary care. Tell us a little bit about what your research found and, and really what your work on that was, because, and the reason why I mentioned that last was obviously, all right, let's free up the doctors. Let's show that the, the medical providers are really not the ones who are taking the most money out of this. There's a lot of other things to fix in here. But then how do we, again, bring better access to patients by what? What, what was your recommendations in, these, in this particular documents, in this research? Well, I, I think the evidence is pretty clear that there are a lot of benefits. Number one, there's a lot of benefits to primary care. There are better health outcomes. It reduces costs. When you can increase access to primary care, it reduces unnecessary spending on things like ED usage and hospitalizations. And, you know, the other aspect from a provider point of view is the issue of burnout, for one thing. Uh, administrative burden, um, which is intertwined with burnout, the impacts on quality of care from having to maintain large panels of patients in primary care, things like that. And direct primary care, there's clear evidence that it has addressed a lot of those issues. It reduces burnout. It can reduce costs. It can increase access to primary care. So there's clearly a, a, an argument to be made for increasing access for physicians being able to set up direct primary care practices and reducing kind of the barriers to that in terms of policy. I'm curious, John, what were the challenges that, it, did anybody write in and saying, oh, yes, that's a crazy idea because of this, this, and this? Did anybody raise flags on why your sentiments were wrong? Well, I think the easiest argument to make there is a workforce argument. You know, if there's evidence that there's a shortage of for example, primary care providers, how do you limit the panel size? You know, isn't this going to reduce access to care? 
But I think the argument there is that you're going to keep primary care providers in the healthcare workforce longer. They're not going to retire early. Uh, more providers are going to enter primary care. You're going to make it more attractive for them. So, you know, I think that's probably the, the most common argument against it. I always kind of shake my head when I hear that because I always feel like somebody who's like, well, you're just going to, you're taking somebody with 2,500 patients and putting them down to 500 or 600. And I, I turn around and I come, are you, are you asking for physicians should be considered indentured servants? Because that's what you're asking here, saying, hey, doc, you need to be chained to your office and see these 2,500 people because why? Who wants to live like that, right? So I, I do love that counter argument that you're talking about, that this prolongs careers. This actually encourages more people to go into primary care. There's a big mindset in, in medical schools, and we've talked to these people that, you know, just because you go to Vanderbilt University uh, Medical School, we don't do primary care doctors from Vanderbilt. And I think with, with this, what we have a shot is to show our best and brightest in our communities who want to go out there and, and take care of other people, that primary care is real and you can have a fantastic lifestyle and make a great career out of it too. So yeah, I, I appreciate the sentiments on it. Were there any other challenges that, that people would express based on your research? Like I said, I think that's the most common counter argument. I mean, it's hard to argue with, you know, the evidence is clearly there uh, in terms of better quality of care, more access to preventive services, for example. You know, if you look at, I think there was one study we looked at with a panel of, say, 2,500 patients, which is maybe a median size for non-direct primary care practice, that just to provide the basic primary care services to that number of patients, the physician would have to work 22 hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Just so something is certainly falling through the cracks with when you have a panel size that big. So, I mean, access to primary care, if you just want to go by the numbers, that's one thing. If you want to go by, are you providing quality care? That's another way to look at it. And I think a more important way to look at it, really. I love what you just said right there. It's almost defining what do you mean by access. So if someone comes up and says, exactly. well, you're taking away people's access by not having 2,500. The rebuttal is kind of like, are you? Do you mean access is an appointment in three months? Is that access to you? Right. And just watch them squirm a little bit. And I don't know it, how you is <laughs> access. Um, if they call your office, you tell them you're too busy. You just go to the emergency room. You know, I mean that's that's not primary care, really. That's nothing. That's not even good advice, yeah. John. Yeah. That's that's no. That's detrimental uh, in every single way, everything you slice it. We're talking with Dr. John O'Shea from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. John, give us a little, uh, give us a little information about your background. What, what kind of led you to this point and and where you started crafting policy documents? Yeah. So I, I'm a general surgeon and I, you know, I've been in practice for a while and I kind of, I started my practice back in, you know, toward the end of the the last century when a lot of um, things, a lot of policies were going into place that I just didn't quite understand. And my interest in policy uh, just sort of evolved. I mean, I started out as an interest and then um, I'd written a couple of things. And then I went back to school and got a a master's in public administration. And then after that, I I worked um, at a couple of different think tanks at Brookings and the Heritage Foundation. Um, I spent several years as a healthcare advisor for the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, in Congress. 
So, and it just was kind of an evolution. And um, really, it just started from wondering, like, who's making all these decisions that are affecting the practice of medicine? Nobody that I knew was making these decisions. And nobody that I, it seemed like it wasn't anybody that knew anything about the practice of medicine. So that's kind of what spurred it. I think that's a sentiment that is pervasive in medicine. Good for you for getting involved. I mean, obviously, uh, I've never been a big fan of somebody who sits on the sidelines and complains about stuff and won't actually go out there and try to fix things or lend their opinion. Either way, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, but just don't sit here and complain about it and give you something to do. Kind of like a rocking chair, you know? Um, so, you know, kudos to you. So what did you, I'm just curious about that because you mentioned that. What did you find? Who was making decisions and how were they influenced? It, it was so interesting being, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill for several years to see how this process works or doesn't work. And a lot of times it's the staff, you know, congressional staff, which are mainly you know, people in their 20s with a political science degree. And, and they try to be as well informed as they possibly can be. They get, you know, information from a lot of different people. But the whole policy process is, um, you know, something that's a good idea and it's going to be a win-win doesn't necessarily get on the radar screen. You know, a lot of it has to do with, with elections and getting votes and things like that. So um, it's often difficult to get policy to move forward. And um, a- again, you know, with, with the large, very diverse healthcare system that we have and um, all the stakeholders in this big country that we have, it's often hard to move policy forward, even, even good policies. A lot of unintended consequences. It, is, it takes years for that to shake out, obviously. And I, I find it's, it's just fascinating that there's calls for, hey, Medicare for all or socialized medicine because people think the free market has failed. When in reality, it's like, no, we're, we're pretty much already there from a socialized medicine standpoint. Why don't we go back the other way? And those are always fun conversations because people seem like their minds are blown. They're like, oh, gosh, free market can't function in healthcare. Right. And, and I think that often leads to very blunt kind of policy instruments that, that seem, to, seem to help the, you know, they're well-intentioned, but often not well thought out and end up not solving the problems that they were meant to solve and, and often creating additional problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John, that leads us to our last question here. And I think it's a wonderful little segue. So thanks, uh, thanks for setting me up for this one. You get granted, you know, you're the healthcare czar for the day and you got your magic wand and you're going to say, whatever I implement, I'm going to wave this wand and poof, it's going to be in there. What does the perfect healthcare system look like from your throne as the healthcare czar for a well, day, the magic healthcare genie? Certainly, you know, I, I said it before, it's difficult to have one thing that's going to solve problems for a, a big, diverse U.S. healthcare system like we have. But I, I think the one thing that's needed now is some changes that are going to um, introduce more consumer choice. And I think consumer choice, and along with that goes transparency and information for consumers to make those choices. And I think that's one of the things that's going to lead to greater competition. It's going to incentivize providers to provide quality care, good value care, be efficient in the costs of care. And I think that's the one thing that at this point is probably most lacking in what is often a dysfunctional kind of healthcare market, if you will. 
Dr. John O'Shea, Texas Public Policy Foundation. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and picking your brain a little bit about some really cool reform ideas. And I, uh, look, I'm over here. I'm a biggest cheerleader you'll find saying, all right, everybody in Texas and other neighboring states, listen to this man, listen to what he's doing because you're all going to be better. (laughs) Uh, If Texas can set the standard for us, then I think we're going to have a lot of states following suit. So good luck to you, sir. Thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Chris, thank you very much. This has been really enjoyable. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on all of them. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com. Catch previous episodes, subscribe to our email mailing list, and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.